You're listening to Inside Content, the TV industry podcast. This show is brought to you by 3Vision, a global TV industry consultancy specializing in content acquisition, strategy, research, and business development. Each episode, we give you VIP access to the views and experiences of senior TV executives and discuss the latest TV industry trends and insights. On this episode, we are joined by Sharon Levy of Yes Studios, the distribution and co-production arm of Yes TV. We delve into their international distribution strategy, including harnessing Israeli IP, selling to local versus global players, strategies for bringing new content to different regions, MIPCOM, AI, and overall challenges faced by distributors in 2023. Sharon, thank you very much for joining us. Can you start by giving us an overview of what Yes Studios is? Yes, of course. And thanks for having me, Peyton. Um, Yeah, Yes Studios is a boutique distribution company. Um, The company sells, distributes content mainly from Yes TV, the leading streaming service and broadcaster here in Israel that operate Yes Plus, which is the streaming service, and Yes TV, the satellite service. We represent series, mostly drama series, scripted series, and we sell them either as finished tape or formats for local adaptations around the world. CS Studios exists since 2017, and one of the most well-known series that we have the honor to distribute is Fauda, which is a huge hit on Yes, and of course a global hit on Netflix, as we all know, in season four finished airing just uh, earlier this year. We're also involved, and this is recently a new line of business for Yes Studios, is collaborating with companies around the world, be it producers, private investors, other distributors, streaming services and broadcasters on co-development and co-production projects. Um, Yes, as as a leading broadcaster here in Israel, we receive a lot of amazing scripts and amazing ideas and we wish we could produce all of it but obviously there's only a handful that we can do on our own so part of our job at yes studios um, is to go out and really find partners that want to come on board early take a look at shows that we have in in early stages in development and if they're interested we work together from a creative aspect we work together on from a financial and production aspect and we currently have four or five different projects that we're doing with different partners from, you know, Europe or the U.S. and working together to to bring it into production and eventually bring it on air. I think it's a big part of our business that keeps growing and growing. I think um, the advantage of working with the studios on this is it actually has a few elements, but the biggest advantage, I guess, is first of all, the budgets of production here in Israel are way, way lower than any other European or definitely American budgets, of course. Um, And also the fact that once we bring in a partner and we go into production, there's a guaranteed commission that will go on air here on Yes, and then later on getting that sold is is a little bit easier once you have a bit of track record. And this is what's been going on with a lot of our previous shows. So that's the main business. It's it's distribution, it's co-production, and we're very happy with what it's bringing so far and what the future holds for that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about your role and maybe like a day in the life, what your typical responsibilities are? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's first of all, my background is really in sales, uh, content sales. I've been working in the um, entertainment industry for I want to say almost twenty five years, um, and a lot of what I've been doing is really making these connections and relationships with people outside of Israel uh, to get them to know the projects that we're doing. At first, it was with music, and now it's in TV. Um, and my role is really, it has two, it's two parts and it's kind of, um, it mirrors what I just said about what the studios is doing is really, a, a, it's a lot about creating these relationships, you know, traveling to the different markets, uh, being in touch with the clients almost on a daily basis, learning about new markets, learning about new outlets that are out there. I think our business is, what I love about the business is it's very dynamic. It's very colorful. It's very creative. It changes all the time, and you really need to get ahead of your game, meaning that you learn a lot and you research a lot. Um, so it's about sales. It's about kind of leaving no stone unturned in the sense of finding the possibilities of, um, of new business. And it could be in new countries, new regions, new types of clients. And for, for us, the deal is a deal is a deal. It could be a great deal in the States. It could be a great deal in Korea. It could be a smaller deal in Kazakhstan. It could really, any country for us is relevant. And a lot of what I do is really to try, and for that, actually, we have an amazing sales team that that's what they do on a daily basis. And then also a big part of what I do specifically is really finding these partnerships um, and build those kind of bridges to find a creative and financial way to work on um, shows that we have in development. So that really, that's a business that I haven't been doing before in my previous jobs. So it's something that I had the opportunity and I was fortunate enough to learn together with the team here at YES. Um, and yeah, you know, you go as, there's, there's no right or wrong, I think. You can really just learn from everything that you do right here. And I also encourage you know, my team and even myself, it's okay to make mistakes because, you know, as the cliche says, that's how you learn and you move forward. And we're lucky enough to work in this industry where, um, you know, you have a lot of learning experiences from the clients that you're in touch with. And that's super helpful as well. Yeah. I mean, you touched on it a little bit about, you know, the importance of building relationships and, and leveraging those, especially in your past careers. What else, you know, I know you spent a lot of time at Armoza. What else in that position, you know, outside of sort of that relationship building, can you can you attribute to kind of helping you in this in this position? I think a lot. I think almost everything that I know now is is, you know, is experience that I you know, that I came with from Armoza formats. It started as a I have to you know, say that Avi Armoza was one of the first pioneers in Israel to recognize the potential of selling Israeli content around the world, starting with one or two non-scripted formats and building kind of like an empire off that until eventually that company was sold entirely to ITV Studios in 2019. So that was a great um, a great thing that happened and normally doesn't happen in, in, in our industry. It's something that you usually hear about in, in high-tech companies. Um, but it happened here and it was a very big deal. And you get to learn a lot about being part, coming from a small company, a private company, as it was in the beginning of my career there, and then being part of a huge company like ITV Studios. So you had, I kind of had the chance to learn from both sides of that story is how to work 
as an, a very small independent company, um, how to really learn from, because I have to say, if there's something that I learned about my almost, I guess, more than 10 years in this specific industry of selling TV content is really how to deal with the negative responses that you receive in terms of, you know, usually you send out material or you meet with clients and they'll be like, no, it's not interesting for me or no, it's less relevant because at the end of the day, it's still Hebrew speaking mostly. It's coming from Israel. It's not yet coming from the States. It's not yet coming from the UK. So you really need to keep on drilling hard and and keep on kind of, you know, it's not it's not something that it's easy to do. It's not that people are lined up out of my door and saying, yeah, sell me the content that you have. You really need to learn hard um, in order to create the relationships and, and, and make these deals. So I think if I learn something really important is how to actually leverage these no's, these negative responses that sometimes can be very discouraging and frustrating at times and really how to build off that and it's just another step to the next yes. And I know it sounds a little bit, you know, dramatic or cliche, but I feel that that's really what keeps me going because I've seen a lot of people that were working with me over the years that it was tough for them to get 90%, 95% time, you'd hear a no. Um, and not a lot of people are, you know, cut out for that. It's very hard to do that. Um, but I think the upside of it is, first of all, everyone is super friendly and there's always a discussion. It's never mean. It's never something that, you know, you feel bad about. You completely understand why you're receiving the negative responses. But I think it's a matter of character that you build over the years that you kind of get accustomed to that. And it helps you build off your next level, your next strategy, your next client, your next series. Um, and you learn from that. And I think it, it taught me a lot, not just in my professional life, but also in my personal life. Um, so I took that as a very big experience, very important experience for me <laughs> on how to create these relationships. I made some really good friends in this industry as well. Um, and it just makes it so much nicer. And, you know, you get to travel, you get to meet different cultures and different places that have probably, if it was, wasn't for this job, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't get to these places. So you learn a lot from that. I think also the more you mature, the more you grow, um, you take these life experience into your job. You, you know how to manage people in a better and more effective way. You learn how to give people the autonomy and the freedom that they need in order to perform the best that they can. And I think, you know, it's like when you have children, you want them to be independent. You won't want them to do everything. You don't want to do everything for them. You want them to take initiative. And I think that's a big part of um, working in our industry, working as a manager. Um, it's, it's a combination of, you know, professional and personal experience to, to do this job. Yeah, great. Um, so Israeli IP, I mean, it has a long history of being successful um, for formats, for scripted TV, you know, like Homeland, your show, Your Honor. Can you kind of talk me through how this informs your strategy when it comes to distributing internationally? I know you mentioned, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, accept that shows people will say no, but I mean, is there sort of different tips and tricks you have for navigating in specific markets and shows? Can you kind of talk me through that? I mean, the, I th the, the best thing I can say, and uh, I learned this from much smarter and more experienced people than me, 
um, is that we're in the business of not knowing, right? You never really know if this is going to be a hit show. You never really know in advance how well this will travel. It's like also in music. When you hear like a first, like a song for the first time, it could hit a really strong chord with you. But do you know for a fact that this is going to be a worldwide hit? It's very rare that you're going to know that. You can believe in it and try and push that as much as you can, but you don't, you don't know most of the time. And this is where this industry can surprise you. I think with a format like Your Honor, that was one of the things that you kind of know because it has such a strong one-liner. This is one of those shows that you can describe in just one or two sentences. It has a universal theme. It questions the relationship between a parent and his child and how far will this parent go in order to save his child's life. It's a universal thing. You don't have any culture in the world that you can't ask that question and it won't be relevant. And I think when you touch on creativity like that, you kind of know that it has the potential. So you have that basic tool and now it's up to you and your sales efforts and your traveling and your relationships to get that message across. I think what we see in Israeli IP, there's a lot of creativity here. I think, I mean, this is a question I've, I've been asked and a lot of people in our industry have been asked this before. Like, what? why is it that such a small country that is barely seen on the map creates so much buzz and creates so much wonderful IP? And I think it's the, you know, we, we are, the Israelis here, there are a lot of creative people here that are great storytellers. I think the reality of living in a country like Israel is very complex. It's complicated. It's not a slam dunk. Um, and it has a lot of turmoils. It has a lot of changes um, from a political aspect, from a geopolitical aspect, from the economy aspect. And I think a lot of these creators are kind of using their imagination, using their experience, using books and real stories to kind of escape the reality in a way or in so or sometimes even portray the reality through their eyes. Um, so there's so much going on at every given moment. There's never a bored moment here in Israel when you live here for the better and for the worse. And all of these things and the fact that this it's kind of like a melting pot. We have people living in this country from all walks of life, from different backgrounds, from different continents, um, with different history stories. And all of that combined together in such a small geographic element, uh, area, just brings out so, it bursts out creativity. And I think, and every once in a while we see that. Sometimes these are stories that at first you don't think can travel, for example, like Fauda. Nobody thought that this thing could actually travel. Why would a show about the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis would interest anyone outside of our region? And lo and behold, here you go. And then there are shows like Shtisel, for example, which is, it's, it's basically kind of like a melodrama about an amazing family that happened to be Orthodox religious that... Who would have thought that this could resonate with people that outside of Israel or outside of the Jude, uh, Jewish community? But it's about the characters. It's about how they evolve throughout the series. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is just great characters, great writing, great stories. And I think that 
there lies a lot of what the successful IP is, really. And yes, there are Jewish people all, all over the world, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of these stories travel regardless. I think they travel because they really strike a chord um, and an emotion, an emotional aspect. And I think that's also part of when you sell content like this. It's not like selling a pair of shoes or selling, you know, TVs or iPhones or whatever. It's it's different. In order to have a successful relationship and a successful sale, it's about, you know, kind of creating with your client or with the person that you're talking to an emotional connection to what you're talking about. Get them to relate to the character. Get them to understand what the theme is about. That's when they lean in. And that's when you know that they're engaged. And that's usually 80% of the process of selling and the rest is in, you know, negotiations and the commercial terms and so on. I think if you're man if you manage to create an emotional connection and emotional relevance, this is our business. This is also why you like shows that you like, because you find sometimes you find yourself in that show. You can relate to the character character or that character creates antagonism and that's exactly what you want to see because he's so opposite of you it creates some sort of an emotion it sparks emotion with you it sparks something with you and you don't just you know it's not something that is passive so you, you sort of identified two parts of the process when it comes to selling and it's sort of the first part being establishing this emotional connection that entices people to want to buy it. And then the second is, you know, agreeing to the commercial terms, the contracts and the signing, all of that. I mean, would you say ultimately that that first part is a bit more important? And then once you can kind of get over that, is that the focus for you? And then you can kind of close out the deal or how does that process go for you? I think, yeah, I think in, in, a, in not so many words, I would say, yes, it's important to create that connection because without that, without that interest, and it strikes a chord with different clients on different aspects. So you never know when that moment will arrive. But I think that without that, you can't move on to the next part. I mean, it normally starts with that. The commercial terms obviously are super important. We're all in this to, you know, for as a business as well. But I can also say that in some places, in some regions, with some content, it's not the most important thing. Sometimes the strategy would be, I have an interest in penetrating new markets or new um, regions or new countries or working with a new client, for example. And not that I would want to set a precedent of, of lowballing anyone or giving you know uh, uh, terms that are too low for me to accept. But yes, there are sometimes strategies where I, where I would prefer to penetrate that certain market or work with that certain client. Um, and in that case, I would negotiate maybe terms that I wouldn't have negotiated otherwise, set it as a non-presidential basis, of course. But I think at the end of the day, it's not always about the quantity. Sometimes it's not just about selling to just any customer, just anywhere. It's usually you need to make the right choice. For example, if we're working on selling a scripted format, and I'm working with a production company, for example, that have never done any scripted projects, I would think twice if I want to work with them because they may not have the right experience. They may not have the access to the right creators and writers for the adaptation. And if 
On the other hand, I have a well-known, experienced, scripted producer. I would maybe prefer to work with them, even if the commercial terms don't really meet my expectations, you know? So I guess it, it really depends. There is no one way to do business. It's just so diverse. And um, that's what's exciting about this business. There are so many different ways to do deals. And you can be... And you know that, the, you know, in the world in very generic terms is divided into the creative people and then the people like us that work with the Excels and the legal and all of that. That's very, I know that's very, very generic. But at the end of the day, it's a combination of, of the two, because even in sales and being a very organized and Excel type of person, you need to be creative in deal making as well. So one doesn't can't work without the other. And the creative people that work on series also keep in mind a lot of times, is this going to be commercial enough? If I want this to sell and to travel, I need to make certain adaptations. So I guess it goes to, it goes together. It goes both ways. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you, I mean, you mentioned your show Fada, which had great success on Netflix. Um, and I'm sure ideally, you, you know, you'd like every series to, you know, hit big on Netflix, but what, can you talk me through kind of the strategy that you have on distributing to global streamers versus local players and how much, you know, focus you devote to each um, of the two? Sure. Um, it's an interesting question because it changes all the time. And, um, and you know, when I started my, you know, working in, in this industry, which was like 10 years ago in 2013, there weren't streamers so much. It wasn't even a thing at the time. I don't even remember if any of them existed. Probably Netflix was just starting out or something. It was very early stages of this industry, right? It was way before we had all these, you know, Peacocks and Paramounts and HBO Maxes and, and Apples and Disney Plus and, you know, you name it. And all of the other regional streamers as well. So we were, you know... This is how we were working. We were going country by country, establishing the relationships in each country, their specific broadcasters and cable services and every little channel that we can get our hands on, we would do business with. And this is something that is still well embedded in my DNA when working professionally. Um, and yes, sometimes, I mean, it depends on the content. There is content that I would say, you know, if it's the founders of the world or the Schlüssels of the world, Yes, I may aim for streamers, not necessarily just Netflix. I mean, you have so many now and you can definitely go to like 10 different types of streamers depending on the content. But I also really love and I love the challenge actually of finding the right streamer in each country or the right broadcaster or the right outlet in each specific country. And to target that, I know it's a lot more work and it requires a lot more research and really finding the right partner for your content. But at the end of the day, sometimes that works even better because when you work locally and they love a show, they'll probably promote it massively in that country using promos in that language, and it will be much more specific. Whereas sometimes what can happen is, yes, the show can go on a global streamer, which is amazing, and we do aim for that in, in many of the cases, but it sometimes doesn't get as much as attention in, in the different countries as you would want it to. So I guess there isn't a right or wrong. I think it's a combination of both. And there are shows 
where, I mean, we do have a strategy for one of our newest shows that is upcoming in the first quarter that we're definitely aiming streamers first. And then, of course, if streamers say no, then we'll go one by one. And yeah, and the other case is that we have shows that we, we want to go straight one by one and see how that works. Um, so, so I guess, you know, there isn't one answer for that. I think on the format side of things, normally if we have a format that has a universal theme or potential to be a global theme, then we would go one by one and find the right producers for that, the ones that can really um, execute the best version possible. And we find that with formats, you know, for example, if we're in Germany, the German audience would love to see the German actors speaking in German, you know, or a host in, in, uh, that they know very well on a channel that they know very well, as opposed to watching an, a Hebrew language show with German dubs, right? Because they dub most of, of the shows. It's a different acceptance. It's a different, um, it's a different way to them to, for them to engage. I think the higher engagement comes from a local production with local actors in the local language than when it does from a foreign language. I think in Israel, it's a bit different. We're very accustomed to watch foreign language shows here. We're very accustomed to watch American shows and Israeli shows like we are with music. You know, from a very young age, we're accustomed to follow the billboards and, you know, the, the charts in the UK and, and the, the hits from music. Same goes with TV. Um, in different countries in Europe, for example, it's, it's, I think it's different. So you have to be very flexible. And again, it's a lot of being creative in the way that we work. So I encourage both ways. I don't think that just working with streamers. And you know what? Being a distributor working just with streamers, that's not really the big challenge because, you know, I guess anyone could really pick up the phone to the 10 different streamers and say, hey, I have a show. Do you want to take a look at it or get an agent for them to do that? Whereas if you really want to be a good distributor, you should know each and every, you know, outlet, each and every cable channel, each and every broadcaster, each and every streaming service in each and every major territory, at least. And so you'll always have the option. You'll be able to sell always anywhere if you use that strategy. So I guess, yeah, it depends on the content, really. But I'm, I encourage both ways. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I read that in your interview with the Jewish Chronicle about how you kind of enjoy how series and titles can take on different lives and different regions. And, and, and it goes beyond just adding subtitling and dubbing. I am curious when you guys, you know, distribute titles like that. I mean, is that how does that process differ when you are, you know, maybe just adding subtitles or dubbing versus are you guys involved in the process of when a series might get adapted completely into having a local production in a specific country? Yeah. We, I mean, the thing is that it's, it's different. I mean, when you sell tape as is, then yeah, normally they throw on the subtitles or they do the dubbing. Um, and we're very proud of that because it's Israeli content that travels. And of course, the local creator is very happy and, and the actors get recognized in other countries. And that's always very exciting. And it's a quicker deal. It's a simpler deal most of the time because here's the tape. We'll do the, you know, we'll do the negotiations and they air it whenever they're, they have the slot for it. And, you know, there's PR and it's great and it starts traveling and the story gets told in the original version. And we take pride in that. That's amazing. I love that. But a, a great part of the job is also watching these kids grow in other countries. You know, it's like watching your child starting to, to run or starting to walk or starting to talk. It's 
you sell a recipe. It's like, I always use this example. It's like, you know, I'll give you a classic recipe for one of my cakes or one of my, I don't know, pastas or whatever. And then we'll sell it to another country and they'll kind of add on their own flavors and herbs and make it into their own dish, which is going to come out amazing, I'm sure. But something that is going to be suitable for their own taste, for their own, you know, taste buds. And I think that's the same with formats. And, you know, I will never know better than a, a German producer or a French producer how to produce a show that will work well for the German audience, for the French audience, for the Korean audience. I would never know that better than them. So I will give them the tools. I will give them the scripts. I will give them the synopsis. I will tell them about the story. I will send them the episodes and I'll see where they found the emotional connection. What strikes them the most, right? Is it this character? Is it this storyline? Is it this relationship? Take that seed of that idea, build off that, your own cake, build off that your own series. And we do, we, we get the scripts, we get the casting, we're involved and they do sometimes consult with us. Like, what would you suggest we should do? Because we don't want to talk about violence here, or we don't want to talk about religion here. We want to change it into something else. And we'll give our advice. We'll add the creators sometimes and the producers sometimes to the discussion to, to give them their knowledge, but we will never force them to do something that is exactly, exactly the same as ours. I think if there are important elements that need to stay in there, most producers will keep it in because they'll know that it serves the story. It's it's very different from the non-scripted world. Like if you want to do your version of the voice, for example, you don't change the voice. You don't take out the chairs. You don't take out the buzzer or the elements because that's what makes the format so successful. With scripted, there's much more flexibility and I think that's the most beautiful part of it, you know, watching how the casting comes along, watching how the storylines evolve. And you see that all over the place. Like we have 10 different versions of Your Honor. The seed of the idea stays the same. The relationship between father, son, the fact that the father is a judge, the son was involved in a hit and run. That's the same all over the world. If it's an Italian French, German, Turkish, you know, in India, in the U.S., it's all the same. It's beautiful. But from that point on, it takes a few turns in some of the countries, right? Some of the countries stayed very loyal to the original, and some of the countries took another turn. The minorities in each country are displayed differently. Um, I think that's the beautiful part about seeing formats evolve. Um, I love the challenge. It's much longer then obviously selling a tape, it, you know, a tape sale can end in like one or two months and they go on air and end of story. A format can take years, but then it just, it's, you know, it's so fulfilling to see that. And, uh, I, you know, I just, and the fact that I'm still excited about it after 10 years, it's also, it just shows you that it's just, it never ends, you know, and we still have, you know, we still have aspirations to do formats in countries that we've never worked before. So we're on that completely. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love that analogy of, of selling a recipe <laughs> kind of organizing it for, for each market. That's great. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you know, that this is a lot of like scripted TV, but I saw that for MIPCOM, you guys are actually going to be introducing a new series. It's it's going to be the second factual title from Yes. Is this going to be a new, you know, area of focus for you guys or? 
I mean, first of all, personally, <laughs> I love documentaries. I've always loved documentaries. Um, I think it's much more, I don't want to say it's dif more difficult to sell, but especially when it's very specific to a phenomenon just here in Israel or about a certain Israeli personality, it's obviously harder to sell. Um, but yes, produces uh, not only dramas, scripted shows, but they also produce um, documentaries, children programming. Um, you know, we need we cater to a lot of different audiences here, and it's a very premium service. So they have amazing, we have here, yes, amazing documentaries. Most of them, I don't think, have potential to travel outside of Israel because of the specific stories and themes. But there are some stories that I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't not try at least and I think the first one that I saw that completely blew my mind was 44 hours and that is a show that I feel needs to reach audiences all over the world it's a show about hope about even a mi miracles can happen it's a show about an, a very ordinary man 33 years old father of two watching basketball on a Thursday night like he's been doing for years and all of a sudden, he loses conscious. He's something's happening. He's rushed to the hospital, and with minutes, the doctors tell his wife, "Brain dead. He has hours to live. Call his parents. Start your goodbyes." All of a sudden, and what we find out is from that point on, and for the next forty-four hours, uh, Gil, the our character, our our main, our our, ma our man of the show, right, um, hears everything that is said around him everything and he it's like you're it's like your worst nightmare you're locked in your own body you can't signal to anyone that you're hearing everything that they're saying there he's he's being it's like being at your own funeral imagine that it's mind-boggling you can't even it's no there's no way you can even wrap your head around that and i saw that i remember one night like, I don't remember when it was, like, uh, almost like eight months ago or nine months ago. And I just couldn't, it just couldn't leave me. It just, I, it stayed with me for so long. And I called the producer the next day and I said, listen, I know that we usually don't sell documentaries. You have to give me this show. I have to try and get the word out to clients everywhere because it's, it's, it's a miracle that happened here. And I think people, it's only three cases known like this in the world. And he, it's like he came back from the dead to tell his story. And just an ordinary person, you know, out of nowhere, healthy and everything. So that was the first factual um, feature. It was actually a feature, not even a series. And then I saw Lifeline. And Lifeline, you know, it's, it's a series. It's a documentary series. And for the first time, we're selling a documentary format, actually. So not just the tape, but there's also a lot of format elements in this series that we hope will be able to travel around the world. And it's extremely relevant because, you know, people have always searched for help and mental health and they go to psychiatrists and psychologists and they use sometimes, you know, psychiatric pills and they and they go to therapy and they call these helplines, right? And this is something that increased by thousands of percents after, percent after COVID. You know, teenagers that felt isolated and secluded, and older people that were that were alone because of COVID. 
And not just that, people that were going through divorces, people that were threatening to, to commit suicide. We have that a lot. And just giving that unique inside look into these help centers, these are volunteers that have been doing this for years. And it tells stories of that one story that they just can't get out of their mind. And it's such unique access to the behind the scenes of these help centers, which normally you don't really put a spotlight on it because it's all anonymous. And of course, this is anonymous too. The volunteers are real. The stories are real. But of course, the, the details have been changed to, to secure the anonymity. But these are stories that are told from the point of view of these volunteers. And there are so many format elements here that we feel that in every country there are several helplines or at least one helpline like that. And we would like them to come and tell their story of that one caller that they just can't get it up out of their mind and to tell that story and to make it more aware that it's okay to seek for help, that it's not all darkness out there. There's a lot of light. And I know it sounds you know, optimistic maybe or po positive thinking, but I think that a lot of people are ashamed to admit that they need external assistance to pick themselves up, especially post-COVID. A lot of people went through life-changing um, stages. They, they moved countries. People are working remotely now, but it also creates a lot of loneliness and and isolation for a lot of people and for teenagers to try and fit in again, it's hard, you know? So I think if we show that it's not all darkness, that there are positive stories that these people can actually reach out and help you. And one of the nicest things that these volunteers are telling the callers when they call in, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. Even though it's just over the phone, even if it's an anonymous, they're holding their hand throughout the way. And a lot of times people just need to know that there's someone out there holding their hand and listening to them. And sometimes that's enough just as a start. So I love the idea. I thought it was beautifully made. And I said, you know, if anything, I want to try and get this message out there. I think it's, you know, when I see documentaries that have added value and yeah, we're all here for the business and commercial terms and that's all fine. That's great. But if there's any added value in the content that we sell, that's a huge plus and it would be my honor to get it out there as much as we can, you know, and help other people. And, you know, we're just in the TV industry and it's not our job, but you know what? Sometimes the content that you put out there can touch people and they can change people's lives. And if we can have a little bit of that in addition to everything else that we're doing, I mean, it's a blessing. Well, you've sold me on the series, so I'm sure you'll be doing some good sales at MIFCOM as well. I hope so. Thank you. Um, shifting gears a little bit, um, AI, it seems like everybody's talking about in every single industry today. Is this something that you guys are using or plan to do anything with in the future? Well, it's technology and you can't fight technology. I mean, you have to find the best way for it to serve what you need, to serve your needs. Um, I know that there are a lot of, there's a lot of criticism about how it's going against different types of um, professions in our industry or just in general, but at the end of the day, it's inevitable. It's here. So you might as well learn it. You might as well try and make use of it uh, in the best possible way. Will it, at the end of the day, will it actually replace 
entire departments and, and functions and people, that's yet to be seen. But I'm pretty sure that a lot of people, most of the people in our profession or, or in any profession really, can, can really kind of harness the technology for their own good. If it's even by the simplest things like translating material that you need or helping you kind of figure out certain elements that you need instead of going to, you know, online and looking for answers, this, this tool can really bring you the answers. If it's in design, you know, uh, mid journeys and all of these things that can really help you with, um, uh, being more creative on your design, getting more ideas, ju creative juices flowing. There's a lot of inspiration that you can get from that. Um, we'll be, we'll be using it. I mean, we're already using it bits and pieces, you know, from, you know, uh, if it's from legal aspects or translation or preparation of materials, we're just starting to kind of touch on that and see how it can come in our favor. Um, I think there's nothing like personal, you know, personal um, creativity, like per personal engagements with people. Because, you know, we, we saw it also during COVID, like all the markets were canceled. They all moved to online and we were all Zooming from morning till night <laughs> and we had Zoom fatigue and we met everyone and we saw everyone and everyone was much more available because it was Zoom. We, we weren't traveling. Um so just like, you know, people are very happy to meet in person again and to hug each other and to have a drink together and to have dinner. And you need that physical engagement with the people. It feels much more warmer. So I think it's kind of the same in many ways with AI. Like, yes, it's technology. Yes, it'll be in our favor. But some things are not going to be fully replaced by that. I still think that to get like some people to brainstorm on ideas I don't think AI can fully replace that. The fact that you have five or six or seven different people kind of brainstorming and arguing and throwing out ideas in, in one room together and, and hashing it out, it's something that is that can't really be replaced to that extent. So I think it's a combination of using it to your benefit across the board in any industry, not fighting it because you'll lose you can say the same for social. You can say the same for just phones in general. You can say the same for almost anything that happened over the course of the years. Like with music, it happened, the transition from records to cassettes and CDs and then MP3s and MP4s. And then, you know, you had the Napsters of the world and all of that. And it changes, it shifts. But at the end of the day, people need content. Content is still king, be it TV, music or arts or whatever. It's just the different ways of consuming it and creating it, but use it in your favor. And it's not going to replace the whole industry. I really, I don't think so anyway. But you know what? Who knows? We're in the business of not knowing, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, so one more question to kind of wrap it up. Um, what, what do you say maybe one, maybe two kind of challenges of the distribution business that you might highlight? Um, in the future that you'll be focused on trying to solve? That is a good question. I've been thinking about that a lot. I don't know if I have one answer to that because the distribution business changes all the time. And what used to be kind of ruled by these five or 10 huge companies, distribution companies that we all know, now you have so many different types of distributors you have the indies, you have the distributors that specialize in documentaries, you have distributors that specialize in non-scripted, you have the huge distributors that do everything from everything. And 
I think there's always going to be room for the boutique distributors like us and, and others around the world. Um, I think one of the challenges is really to bring in more content that kind of goes along with our DNA, which is really premium content, uh, just like the content that Yes is producing. I'm very open to bringing, and I want to bring in content from across the world, you know, not just from Israel. I'm happy to represent and be known for just being a premium boutique distributor that distributes not only Israeli content, which is great, but also content that can come from Iceland, from Finland, from South America, from Greece, you know, any, any country that has good content, premium content, format potential um, is interesting for me. And that, I think, for us is a challenge, not only just for us, I think it's a challenge everywhere to get your hands on really good content. Um, and being boutique, it's not that we can offer huge amounts of money as MGs, like the big conglomerates, right? But we have the advantage of being um, very personal, and it's not going to get lost in the crowd. It's going to get the full attention that it needs. Um, it's a challenge. It's also, you know, also being against these huge companies is always a challenge because we're much smaller. Um, but I think also part of what is ahead of us is really to extend our catalog also from the factual documentary side of things and maybe even moving into, you know, other types of genres that we didn't touch on before. Um, yes, scripted is what I love the most, but I also my background is non-scripted. So who knows? Maybe next time we speak, we'll have an amazing reality show or a great so social experiment format to sell. Um, so I think expanding is good. I think that's the challenge is to expand in a way that really meets our DNA. Um, and yeah, and to keep, you know, to keep up with the trends and to just, you know, Get, getting in touch with as many people as possible and maintaining those relationships, I think, is the most important thing because, yeah, they're going to continue to say no, but at least everyone's nice. And they can tell me 10 times no, the 11th time they're going to say yes. So that's what we all count on. That's always the challenge. <laughs> yeah, totally. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, I look forward to seeing what Yes Studios is, is up to in the future. It sounds like you guys have an exciting path ahead. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Really appreciate it. Right, thank you so much, Peyton. It was a pleasure and uh, I loved every moment of it. I hope everything goes well. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see each other uh, at one of the markets. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Sharon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Content the TV industry podcast brought to you by 3Vision. With decades of TV industry experience and real-world success, we know the ins and outs of the market like nobody else. To learn more about our TV consultancy services, head to 3vision.tv.